In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the revolutionary potential of quantum computing, specifically in the research and development of new materials and technology. To dig into this topic, we're going to be talking with Katie Pizzolato, uh, who is director of IBM Quantum Strategy and Applications Research, and Vijay Swarup, who is vice president of research and development at ExxonMobil. Now, this is going to be the last of four episodes in this current series that Robert and I are releasing here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, you can check out the ones labeled Smart Talks that we've published over the last few weeks, or you can listen to four earlier episodes, which were released not on our show, but on the feed for the podcast Tech Stuff. Uh, you can find those at the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. Just look up Tech Stuff and click on the episodes labeled Smart Talks. And now straight on into our conversation with Katie and Vijay. Katie and Vijay, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, could you both start off, I guess maybe we can start with Katie here. Uh, can you each introduce yourself? And Katie, can you talk about your role at IBM? Sure. Hi, my name is Katie Pizzolatto. I'm the director of IBM Quantum Strategy and Applications Research. Uh, my team uh, is a group of quantum information scientists partnered with really great external partners like Vijay here with us today to look at applications for quantum computing uh, and engage the quantum audience more broadly within our IBM Q network. Okay, and, and I'm Vijay Swarup. I'm Vice President of Research and Development. ExxonMobil Research and Engineering. It's great to be with all three of you um, today, and I certainly hope everybody's well and keeping healthy in these times. Um, our, our mandate in R&D is to provide energy solutions at scale, and that requires fundamental technology, fundamental research, and it requires new capabilities and new tools, uh, which quantum computing is clearly one of those. It could be a game changer as we develop uh, solutions for, uh, for society. So I guess both of you can jump in here to add your thoughts in whatever order seems right. But uh, let's start with the most basic question. What is quantum computing? And um, importantly, how is it different from classical computing? I'll take I'll take the first part of that, Vijay, but I've heard you answer this question very well before. <laughs> so uh, the way to really think about quantum at, at the, the top is a fundamentally different way to process information. Um, it is not an add on to an evolution of anything that we have today, it is fundamentally different. And it's using the laws of quantum mechanics. Those laws govern everything we see in nature at the fundamental level. And it's using those to process information differently at its core. Um, for the for the mathematicians out there, you can think about it as really manipulating matrices. Um, and you can, but the number one way to think about it is that it's fundamentally different than, than our classical computers that are available to us today because it exploits these laws of quantum mechanics. And because of that, it allows you to solve problems that are quite frankly unsolvable today. And, you know, that's a really powerful statement because you think about what we're able to do today which in itself is mind-blowing versus what we did 30 years ago. So we've taken classical computing uh, to a level that, quite frankly, is beyond imagination. And even with that, we can't solve some of the most fundamental problems that we're trying to solve because we just don't have the accuracy, particularly when it comes to chemistry, when it comes to fundamentals of atoms and subatomic levels and, and chemical engineering and chemistry problems. There's a lot of approximation that's done, and it's limited by computing power. So quantum has, has the potential, and we're pretty excited about this, to be able to solve those problems. And those problems are going to be the root 
of the solutions that we're looking for for many of the challenges that we face today. So one thing I think probably a lot of people will have heard is quantum computing described as being faster than classical computing. And that's sort of a misunderstanding. I mean, it, it is faster at certain types of problems that would probably be completely intractable Correct. to regular computers. Is that right? Yes. But in another sense, it's not, uh, Katie, you were sort of getting at this, it's not really the right frame of mind to think of it as just faster. It deals with information in a fundamentally different way that incorporates uncertainty. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And and there was a paper that IBM put out to explain this a little bit better about like the, the power or the potential of near-term quantum devices. And there's three, there's three things that I take from that paper that I really like to use. Like the relevance of the quantum computer is derived from the type of algorithms that can be run on it. And as we say, it, it's addressing and using laws that are and, and types of computation that are not available to us classically. So that's, that's the relevance of the quantum device. The advantage of that device is based on the complexity of those algorithms because we have access to this other space to explore, not on the ability to really perform those fast operations. So a lot of what we talk about when we think about what can we do next is we're, we're really identifying like very specific al- applications and tying them back to the complexity rooted in those algorithms. So you can think fast, but it's not... Um, it's not fast in the way that we think of how classical computers have have been able to come and get faster by doing things in parallel or adding more memory or adding more CPUs or things like that. It, it really is just processing information differently. And that's why it's it's really the complexity of the algorithms that it can run, um, not not the ability to do it fast. So to help people understand what we're talking about here, it might be helpful to, to think about the physical details. We know that regular computers execute their logic by controlling the flow of electrons on a semiconductor chip. We've you know, seen what those look like inside your computer. What physically does the work of computing in a quantum computer and what does it look like? What is it made of? Okay. All right. Good question. So I'll I'll talk really quickly about the difference between kind of the classical bit and the quantum bit. Um, And so the quantum analog to a classical bit is is what we call a qubit. Um, And so in classical states, you know, the binary states can be zero or one, but the key difference in the qubit is that it can be kind of in a linear combination of zero and one at the same time. But what you can also think about it is it's, it's a system that exists in a state with a probability of being zero zero or one, and only when we measure it can we define the state zero or one, right? So we it exists in that probability. When we measure, we get the we get the one that that gets the higher probability. So the, the classical computers, they double the power of the computer every time you double the number of transistors, like normal Moore's law that we've always talked about. Qubits, the power in quantum system, you double the power of the computer every time you add a qubit. So that's a really important part. But if you think, so let's talk about, so so I've told you that we have these states. They kind of exist in a state of zero or one with a probability of being either one of those at the same time. So now let's take it down to the device level and talk about how we create these states. At IBM, we use superconducting qubits. If you've ever looked closely at a computer chip, uh, like a printed circuit board, quantum chips don't look very different than classical chips. However, the materials are different and how they operate is very different. So in particular, we use superconducting materials and at low temperatures, we leverage the quantum effects of such systems to build new circuit elements in comparison to like the capacitors and inductors of classical circuits. 
whereas classical transistors are operated, as you mentioned, by driving an electric current through them, qubits are manipulated by hitting them with microwave pulses. So we use these microwave pulses to create the states during the computation. To implement the states and control them, you need a super controlled environment. The systems are really sensitive to the environment they are in. So like vibrations, heat, stray electromagnetic fields, all of those things can impact the state of the system and change that likelihood, like I mentioned, of being zero or one. So we do everything we can to limit the exposure of the environment. We operate at really low temperatures, in a vacuum, vibration insulations, and also through a lot of our software techniques, we try to correct for the noise that we can't avoid, like in a physical sense. But even with all of our efforts, the systems still remain incredibly sensitive to noise, and this is a really active area of research and hardware. Okay, so I mentioned what the states are, how we create them and keep them, and now let's talk about how to use them. So you're encoding these problems into these quantum mechanical states, as I mentioned. And I like to think about the math of this a little bit because that's kind of how it resonates the best in my head and really makes the, the idea start coming to life. So these states are vectors and they have probability amplitudes associated with them. And these probability amplitudes can be positive or negative. So instead of working with only positive probabilities like you do in classical computing, we're working with positive and negative probability amplitudes. So you can now start to think about these you know, positive amplitudes you know, adding up and these positive and negative amplitudes kind of canceling out. So you have this really powerful tool to manipulate these states by applying these operators that are matrices and you can interfere these states to drive toward the solution you want faster. This is the magic of a quantum algorithm. How can you manipulate these states like orchestrating a symphony to drive to the right answer? So you have to create the states, you have to hold the states precisely, and you have to manipulate them properly. And so to give you some context, on uh, the size of what I'm talking about. Uh, so when I talk about a qubit, you, you have good qubits. Uh, we're making better qubits every day, but errors associated with these qubits can be tricky. Um, I like to think about it like telephone. If you're connecting all these qubits and you're talking across them, if you and if we were all in a circle doing telephone, if if I tell you something and you get it wrong, you're definitely going to get it to the next guy wrong, and then you know <laughs> on and on. And when it gets to the end, it's going to be the wrong answer. So you don't want these errors to pile up. And it's because when you create all these states and manipulate them to interfere and cancel one another out, you're really exploring a really large number of basis states at the same time. And they can rapidly grow because you're doubling the power of your quantum device every time you add a qubit. So in a way, is it? could you kind of think of it as uh, stretchy math instead of rigid math? So I really like to think about it as, as matrix operations. To me, in my head, that's really the way that it works. Um, so, and I think that personally, so a lot of people, when you think about quantum mechanics in general, Einstein himself had trouble with this, right? So this is not an easy, you know, this is not an easy thing for most people to understand. And there's probably 500 people in the world who really understand it at its core. And we're lucky that a lot of them work with us. Uh, but, but it's, it, they're very different and, and tricky things to think about. Um, but it is it is at its core a series of, of matrix operations. So it's vector operators 
on matrices and, and the linear combination of the state, as I said, so I, let me take a step back. So I said that these things can be a zero one or at the same time, the zero one have a weight against them. You can think it's a, like a, a coefficient on them. Um, you are using those coefficients and those probabilities associated with the zero and one state. And, and you are using amplitudes as we discussed in the waves. And you're, you're really manipulating these amplitudes and manipulating these matrices in a way that's going to interfere in a certain way. So you can think about it as a lot of matrix multiplication um, using, but with quantum, you're playing with these amplitudes that can be positive or negative. And that's how you're doing this constructive and destructive interference. Now, in terms of actually using a quantum computer, is this something that an everyday person, the average person would be able to use? Or is it the sort of thing where you really need a PhD to even touch it? So I would say that where we are today in the in the really like early adopter innovation stage, the people that are going to get the most out of it and the people that are getting the most out of it today, like people on VJ's team, are, are very highly skilled people, either within like directly within the physics arena or within adjacent, you know, mathematical or computational heavy fields. Um, but what... IBM is striving heavily for with the introduction of our, our KIS kit, which is our software development toolkit, is to really start abstracting these layers away, right? So just like many people creating apps and, and doing things within the classical space don't aren't really thinking about the logic gates underneath, that's where we will get with quantum devices today for care, you know, characterizing the devices, really creating new algorithms and, and um, kind of the fundamental research of what needs to be done to accelerate in this space, you do have to have a deeper understanding. But with the tools available um, via IBM, anybody can get started. We've engaged a lot of high school students, tons of early uh, college students um, through, you know, undergrad, master's, PhD. So everyone can get started today on thinking about how to think about quantum versus classical. There's a lot of things to learn to start thinking about how quantum differs in classical, but there's tons of tools to get started today. Um, to really take advantage of it today, I think a lower, uh, you know, a deeper skill set is required, but that will continue to get abstracted away as the technology grows. Yeah, I don't think that's any different than today. Um, to, to actually design the computer, to actually do the stuff requires a, a skill set that the user may not have. And I think the interesting thing that IBM has done is by creating this portal that people can go and just test drive quantum and try to understand what it can do. Uh, and because that, that's what it, it is a different way, as Katie described uh, very well, it's a different way of thinking. And once you get your head around the different way of thinking, it allows you to think about problems that uh, are uniquely suited to quantum. And what I think is exciting about engaging the high school kids and the college students is this is the generation that, will be using the quantum computer. It is still, you know, years away from being able to be used at a, at a scale that we want it to be used at. Uh, and that, of course, is why we're collaborating with IBM, because we think uh, the neat thing about what we're doing here is we're trying to do things in parallel, meaning while the hardware is being invented, literally being invented, the software is being developed. That isn't normally how things are done. And while those two things are happening, we're actually trying to figure out what problems are best suited to a quantum computer so we can build the hardware, design the software, and start solving problems. 
And that's, that's a interesting way of thinking. It requires a different skill set. And our two companies coming together to work on this, bring uh, those complementary skills to try to accelerate the speed at which we can uh, uh, materialize quantum computing. Right. And we're not, we're not looking to solve problems that, you know, you can, you can do pretty well today and you want to do a little better tomorrow. We are looking at solving things that you cannot do today. These intractable problems that we talked about at the beginning, right? There are problems that classical computers cannot solve. So, um, when we talked a minute ago, you know, I kind of, I kind of mentioned the, the qubit versus the bit. And, and as I mentioned, this linear combination of the, the two states and allowing you to have access to these state space allows you to really grow the size of the quantum device and the access to those states really quickly. So a classical computer, the power of it doubles every time you double the number of transistors. You know, we've known that for a while. The quantum computer doubles every time you add a qubit because of these states that you create at the same time and you can explore at the same time. So the problems that we're looking at and the things that we're trying to do um, is really revolutionary, I I think, versus evolutionary. And that's the exciting part, um, is like, what can we do with this thing? And I think if you think back to, you know, when we first started flipping on and off transistors, you know, in the 50s or late 40s, you know, 50s, we had no idea that it would turn into us doing a a Zoom podcast about quantum computing these years later. So the possibilities are exciting um, and and this truly differentiated nature of it is what makes it fun. Well, I think this might be a good place then to talk about specific examples of problems uh, and maybe to do a kind of uh, inverted format here. To start off, like, what are some examples of computing problems that quantum computing would not be especially useful for? And then what are examples of problems where it would be especially useful? And why Why are those the special problems that require quantum? Yeah. So the things it's not good at, it, it's not a it's not a big data machine, right? I think when people hear like state space, they think you're going to put a bunch of data in and, and derive a lot of insight from that data in the same way that you do um, classical devices. But when we when we spoke earlier at the top about these intractable problems, those are these are the ones that, you know, the, the time or the memory grows exponentially with the size of the problem, right? These are the ones that if you keep adding a little bit, they get really big, really fast. Um, graph walk, we kind of talk about them a lot in three different buckets, like simulating chemistry and materials, which is a big one and incredibly important to all the solutions that we need for the future. Um, you know, not only smarter energy or cleaner energy, but, you know, more efficient and and things like that. Um, all the way down to, you know, deriving, not deriving insight from large data sets, but how do you start to classify linear systems differently, um, in AI and machine learning. And this gets back to being able to, manipulate the states in a certain way and then cancel out the things that you don't want and filter up to the top of the things that you want in a, in a way that isn't um, looking at them one by one, um, which is what we're doing today. So we can look at a lot of things one by one. Like you said, the, the things we've done with classical devices is, is impressive. But if you get past I think the, you know, the electron number is fairly small. You can't simulate materials anymore. You know, the reason we don't have better batteries, is not because we don't know how to come up with new materials. It's that 
to test them takes an enormous amount of time. You know, there was a, a recent paper, I think they took a three year, three year and like 3000 batteries or something to come up with this paper to, to potentially identify a new material. So the reason that takes so long is you can't simulate chemistry and materials. The problems get way too complex, way too fast, and you can't encode all those states on a classical device. So you... You have, you're thinking about problems that are larger and, and more complex than kind of the, the one-by-one iteration that we do in classical devices now. Um, you know, medicine, protein folding, it happens in your body every day, all the time. Every good, a lot of the good medicines that we have have to do with the fact that they figured out if you fold this thing in the right way, it's going to attach to a cell in your body and, and do what you want it to do. The, the number of possible ways that protein can fold is you can't, you couldn't, in all the time and space, you couldn't calculate it. So you've got to find a way to simulate it. And we need this larger space to be able to encode those types of problems. Yeah, I think um, if, if we, so let's not confuse hard, you know, quantum, which can only solve hard problems. Uh, quantum can help solve complex problems, but that doesn't mean they're not critical to solve or they're really important to solve. I mean, let's, let's take our company, for instance, right? We're obviously a very large energy company. Uh, we have a long-term commitment to research. We've had a long-standing collaboration with IBM, goes back decades, in applying computers to solving energy problems. And we've, we've made tremendous strides from compositional understanding of what makes up a barrel of oil to simulating reservoirs, uh, things like that. We're now faced with a, what we call the dual challenge, which is providing energy to a growing middle class while addressing the risks of climate change. To do that, just like quantum is a new way of thinking about uh, computing, to do what we're trying to do in energy, we have to start thinking about different ways to provide energy. That's going to, by extension, require, as Katie mentioned, new materials and new processes. To understand the new materials, you need to be able to design the materials. To design the materials, you need to understand the material at the atomic, subatomic level. And as Katie said, today, at a very small complexity, you run out of computational speed and computational capacity. So as we're designing, and let's think of, and and let's think about real challenges we have. You know, you hear a lot about carbon capture, which is a way to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. You need materials to do that. If you can design the material and you can simulate the material, which, which you can't do on classical computers, if you can do that on a quantum computer, that will speed uh, the development. And while we're talking about quantum not necessarily being for just speed, it is for complexity. And some of the complexity of of optimizing a grid where you have seven or eight different inputs, uh, and those things have to be done at a speed and an accuracy that is beyond what can be done today, quantum might be able to solve that. So, you know, understanding the types of problems that are uniquely suited to a quantum solution is really important. And that's kind of the stage we're at right now as we're trying to understand what, what could really benefit from this. If it's sheer power, classical computing, as Katie said, can get you pretty far. But if it's complexity and power, then, then quantum uh, can help us. And we're pretty optimistic about the potential uh, that quantum has. But I want to make sure people understand that uh, hard problems need to be solved today. And we've been solving hard problems for a long time, but the next set of solutions that are needed are, we're getting, these are really, really hard problems. And these types of tools are going to enable the solutions. Right. It's remarkable how far we've come 
with the classical logic and the classical devices that we've had access to. It's phenomenal. And they're going to continue to be good. And they're going to continue to do what they, a lot of the things they do today really, really well. Quantum devices are, yeah, quantum devices are not general purpose. You know, they will be best when paired with the right problem. And that's the key word, paired, right? This isn't A or B. This isn't classical or, or quantum. This is classical and quantum. And it's really where we are in the, in the discovery and development of this is really understanding the possibilities of quantum. Because I think conceptually, Gadam, our goal working with IBM is to try to reduce these to practice so that we can speed the development of solutions. And transform our skills, right? I mean, this, this is, we have to usher in a, a new generation of skill, or maybe not a new generation, but an evol- the evolution of skills for the revolution, I guess, of the computing. This is a paradigm shift. And you know what's funny about a paradigm shift is you're not supposed to know you're in a paradigm shift. <laughs> you, you know you're in a paradigm shift when you come out of the paradigm shift. Okay, that's why it's called a paradigm shift. Yet this one, you know it's a paradigm shift. Because as Katie's described very well, this, this is extremely disruptive to how we think, and it's disruptive in terms of what we can solve. And so it, it's, it's awesome that we're having this discussion because we've got to start uh, imagining the art of the possible. What, what can this do? And we need to begin having the discussions at the high school level, at the college level, so it's embraced. Because this, this, is, this is that game-changing. It is that much of a paradigm. And, that, and that's what's kind of exciting about this, that, that to, to actually know you're living through a paradigm shift while you're going through the paradigm in itself is kind of a complex thing to think about. But that's, that's what we think we're on here. Now, I have a question in, in terms of, of, of timing, uh, because I know a lot of our listeners, you know, they may have they've probably heard about quantum um, computing and in, in the at least in the background of, of things for a while. And, and certainly a lot of uh, what is said about quantum computing is, is is talking about, you know, exciting things happening right now and where we can go in the future. But, uh, for instance, th- this paradigm shift, uh, how long has it been going on? And like, like how, how long has quantum computing been like a, a real tangible part of, of the discussion? It's been thought about for decades. But the reduction to practice, that's a relatively recent thing. And I think what IBM is doing is, and I'll let Katie give in the details, but I think what we're seeing and what gets us excited is how fast it's coming together. And, and that doesn't mean there still isn't work to be done, uh, but we were the first energy company to join the Q network. Uh, because IBM had shown enough to say that there's something here. And we wanted to start thinking about it in terms of energy, because energy and computing, as I said, have always gone hand in hand. Um, and so in the two years that we've been involved, we've seen tremendous acceleration here. Um, and that gets us even more excitement. So excitement kind of exponentially grows. And um, while we're not there yet, again, like I said, we're the hardware, the software, the questioning, all that's kind of happening in parallel. And, um, you know, we're, we're optimistic of what this can do. Yeah, absolutely. And so when, you know, we kind of at IBM, we talk about it in kind of three distinct phases. So, you know, the quantum science phase has been happening for, you know, since the early 1900s, where people really started debating, like, can, can you model nature? How do you do that? Can you, can you use these, um, can you, you know, classical, classical mechanics at the time couldn't fully describe the world of atoms and really led to the emergence of quantum theory and deep, deep 
debate, you know, resulting in the deeper understanding of quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, it's where everyone says Einstein didn't, you know, really wasn't really fully on board with some of it. Um, qubits were born in that era, um, really the fundamental of quantum information science. Can we leverage these principles for computation? And then IBM really believes that the shift from the, the principle and the theoretical into practice happened in 2016 when we put the first device on the cloud. We put a five qubit device on the cloud and we said, everybody have at it. And the results have truly been remarkable. You know, you know, four years later, we have 18 devices on the cloud. Um, we have over 200,000 users, billions of circuits, and all in the pursuit of this acceleration. You know, we don't think it can happen in a vacuum. We, we need to know what what the things are that ex people like Exxon can want to dream about and imagine what tomorrow looks like. And can we use this computation to push us there? So IBM, you know, deeply involved at least for the last three decades um, in, in, you know, really bringing this to fruition. Um, but it's been a, a long pursuit for IBM. And we think that that practice really turned on when we started having access to these devices um, and access to really trying out how are we going to use this and how can we push the boundaries. And it's been really fun. It's, it's been fascinating and, and we're building every day. So from a timing perspective, IBM also uh, introduced the idea of quantum volume. And you can just think about that as a, a way to measure the power of the device. So, you know, how deep can your circuit go? Rough numbers over how many, how many qubits. And we said last year that we have to double the quantum volume every year for the next, you know, through every year to get to quantum advantage in the 2020s. And so that's really our pursuit and our metric of, we need to create um, better devices with less error so we can do better algorithms and applications as, as we're talking here today. So I, I think, VJ, you hit it head on with the parallel pursuit, right? We, we, we are definitely pursuing both avenues in parallel. The hardware is running fast and the, the theory and algorithms and applications are running right along with it so we can be first to act when, when these devices become available at, at a bigger scale. So what do you see for the midterm future of quantum computing if you look a, a few decades into the future what what do you imagine might be possible um what seems likely to you and then what do you imagine in a best case scenario I, I think you know when we look back at the beginning of of classical i could have never imagined where we were today so i think that's something really important to state is that the you know we don't nobody has a crystal ball on on what's going to happen but if we're really thinking about you know 20 years we you know 10 20 years we should absolutely be seeing improvements in in the quantum simulation space and material discovery as you discussed um you know new new materials um looking at, you know, electron, electrical networks, optimizing power grids, processes in AI. Uh, I, I don't think that that is, I think in, I think in, you know, the next couple decades, we're going to see these kind of um, paradigm shifts that, that VJ spoke about. Um, if we look at the trajectory that we've been on, right, um, it's been area of rapid growth, rapid growth in the hardware, lots of new algorithmic discoveries, um, I, I I see us continuing on that really neat trajectory, and I think the next couple of decades is going to be fascinating. I think we're going to see progress in the next years. I don't think it's going to be decades. Um, I think uh, the progress that's been made over the last couple of years has me pretty excited. 
while it will, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to stop in the next couple of years, but to answer your question, I would say that you're probably going to see some tangible examples in years leading to, uh, leading, leading to the big, the big things in decades. And so, and that's, and that's part of the challenge that we have right now is we're trying to define the prototype problems to solve because you want to, you want to, again, that crawl, walk, run, you want to be fit for purpose as IBM is building bigger and more powerful quantum capabilities. Um, you know, we want to make sure we're testing it and getting the air, you know, this, there's an error challenge here, right, Katie? There's a, yeah. that's one of the biggest challenges here, which is how do you get the accuracy that you need um, because of the way the quantum uh, mechanics works. And, uh, you know, I think that's what we're really focused on right now is, is simultaneously increasing accuracy, decreasing error. And um, the speed at which this uh, grows is going to be those two factors. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, and I think yeah. we will see things in years as well as decades. Absolutely. I think you're, I think, like you said, the every, it seems like every, you know, every, there's a, a steady drumbeat of, of really good progress that will ultimately lead to these paradigm things that we're talking about, you know, really thinking about carbon capture and things like that. Right. But I, but I agree. I think we're going to see really exciting progress very continually. Now, you mentioned uh, crawling before you walk, walking before you run. To, to get a little speculative for a moment, what, what, would, a, what would the world look like uh, in a world where quantum uh, computing is, is at that running stage? You, you know, if I talk about energy for a minute, okay, uh, people really need energy. And if you get down to it, what they really just want is energy. You want, when you flip your light switch, you want your lights to come on. When you turn the ignition, you want your car to run, you, you, right? What you're going to see in a state where quantum is used is you're going to see solutions being delivered faster. You're going to see more options. You're going to see solutions to what we call the dual challenge, which is how do you eradicate energy poverty while reducing emissions? You will see better medicines, right? Remember, this is quantum computers in a supporter to a variety of innovations. It is not, it, it, while it is in itself an innovation, it is not an innovation that the end user is gonna say, oh, I got that because of quantum. What they're gonna do is they're gonna say, oh, I really like that solution, much like today. I mean, you think about what Katie described in the, the, uh, the exascale computing that we're doing today, the speed at which you can do things today, which, which for somebody who's been around as long as I have kind of blows your mind itself. Um, but the end user is kind of agnostic to that, right? So I think in a world where quantum is used, you're going to have a different set of solutions. You're going to have solutions faster. It's going to uh, improve uh, qualities of life, qualities of society. We think it's going to be a, an enabler to solve some of the challenges we have in energy. Um, and so I think there is a, a, a lot of things that quantum can impact. Uh, but, but to be frank with you, I think a lot of people will not actually recognize that it was quantum that enabled that particular technology to be developed. Yeah, I, I think I think of quantum as like a it's going to impact the things that we rely on 
but it's not going to impact our interactions. You know, like I, I don't see quantum replacing your iPhone, right? I, I see it as potentially making a material where we never get a battery that explodes again or something like that, right? So it'll it'll impact it'll impact the things you rely on, but I don't see it impacting. It'll impact the things we rely on. I think that to me, that's the way I think about it. The, the big things that we take for granted in a lot of ways, right? We take for granted that we flip on a switch and the light comes on. You know, we take for granted that we have healthy food chains and that we can go to the store and buy, you know, tomatoes when we want or whatever it is. And I think it's those kind of things that will um, improve that um, will, I will have a, a more societal or, you know, industry and societal impact than a, than a day-to-day impact. You know, Katie, and the way we've talked about this many times, right, at, at the core of what quantum does, it'll help, it'll help us understand nature. Yes. And that, that, is there a more powerful statement to say than that? Yeah, I mean, there's things we, yeah, there's so much we don't know. And so much we cannot know until we get the horsepower to be able to understand it. And so, to me, if you want to make it as simple as what can quantum do, it'll help us understand nature. And from that, you can extrapolate to essentially every industry, every sector of life. I mean, it, it is it is that powerful. And that's why, you know, that's why both our companies are investing as much time and as much people power as we are to yeah. uh, to try to to try to see where this can take us. It, it really is that exciting. It really is that exciting. I would encourage the listeners to to read about this, to ask questions about it, to embrace it, to expose the younger generation to it, because this is the next wave. And like I said earlier, it's, it's rare that you know the next wave is coming. Uh, but in this case, we know the next wave is coming. And, um, and again, just one more comment, you know, the collaboration we've had with IBM trying to understand how this applies to energy and um, how this can really change the way we think about energy, deliver energy at scale globally while uh, reducing emissions. I mean, these are real world problems that requires something like quantum to help us solve. So we're really excited about it. And again, thank you for allowing us to participate in this, uh, in this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just, I would echo everything that he just said, you know, all the tools that I mentioned, they're open source, they're online. We have, we have um, opportunities that, you know, if you're a teacher, there's ways that you can use our, you know, our tools to educate in the classroom about quantum. Um, If you're a young researcher, there's tons of information out there to explain. Um, You know, if you're a parent, tell your high school student, you know, tell your high school kids about this, tell your middle school kids about it, tell your college kids about it for sure. Um, If you're, entering college now, when you come out of college, this will be a part of the discussion. The, the, the rapid skill transformation here is not going to stop. So I absolutely encourage everyone to get started today because it, it, it is, it's pretty exciting. All right. So there you have it. Thanks again to Katie and VJ for talking with us. If you'd like to learn more about Smart Talks, go to ibm.com slash smart talks. And if you want to learn more about IBM's quantum computing projects, go to ibm.com slash quantum dash computing. And if you would like to uh, explore more episodes of our show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. We just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.